Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the TWS podcast. It's lights out and away we go. I got free sausages sent to me every week for a year. Brilliant. <laughs> no, I never really got to, I never really got to a place where I could call Michael a friend of mine, really. Don't worry, guys, I'm back. Panic's over. I'm here. And it was Wayne Rooney who walked through the doors. And I remember him saying, just make the most of every moment. Hello, my name is Simon Lazeby and I'm a presenter on Sky Sports. You may have seen me present sports such as the F1, international rugby, England cricket and golf from around the world. However, I wanted to come and give you some information about the TWS Sports Podcast. The TWS Sports Podcast is the only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic students who interview some of the biggest names in sport. Each week, they speak to a different sports person and delve deep into their lives, talking about the highs and the lows of their career and what makes them a top athlete in their sport. The TWS Sports Podcast were voted the best sports podcast in the world that promotes social equality. They picked up that honour at the 2021 Sports Podcast Awards. So if you're a sports fan and want to hear these great stories with questions from some amazing young people who promote autism, then the TWS Sports Podcast is the podcast for you. Techno Wood School is a school for autistic children and young adults, and we have set this podcast up to provide our pupils with a fantastic opportunity to develop a range of skills whilst interviewing top sportsmen and women from a variety of different sports. Joining us today on the TWS Sports Podcast is a former footballer, He's played for teams such as Chelsea, Everton and Scotland. Welcome to the podcast, Pat Nevin. Hello, hello, Adam. And uh, hello, Mason, who is alongside you there. And good, yeah, have you on. good morning, Mason. How are you? Good. Yes. So for everyone listening, this is Mason's first podcast. So um, we're looking forward to having you on our team, Mason, and having a chat with Pat today. Yeah. yeah. And before we start, Pat, we've got a few random questions before we start talking about your career. Okay, you ready? Yeah. Go on. Who is a most famous person in your phone book? Okay, so who is the most famous person in your phone book? Um, the most famous person? That's a great question. Um, maybe he's no longer with us. He died quite, quite recently. But I used to have a guy called Pelly. I had Pelly's phone number. And Pelly was, he's like Diego Maradona and Ronaldo, you know, one of the greatest players ever to play football. And uh, Pelly gave me his phone number once. It's his, it was his Brazilian phone number. And uh, that was probably the most famous one I ever had. You need to tell us a story, but how, how did that happen? How did you get that phone, phone number? Well, I was the in, in the PFA, which is the Professional Footballers Association. I was the chairman of that organization. Now, that's the union for all the professional footballers in England. And for some years, five years, I was the union chairman. And every year we had a very special night. And that special night, we had our player of the year. And the player of the year every year was chosen by all the players. And... Um, I had to sit at the top table with our guest of honour and take care of our guest of honour for the whole night. And one year it was a guy called, well, Tennant O'Gleish. He's quite famous. Um, and I, he was a teammate of mine for Scotland. There was a, a Terry Venables one year, Dennis Law, who was a very, very famous footballer, a, a good bit older than me. Um, but one year we, we decided to have a guy called Pelly. 
and because he was the greatest player in the world, we sat together and Pelly and I, we just got on incredibly well. And at the end of the evening, he said, why don't you come with me to Brazil and set up a PFA, a professional footballs association in Brazil. So it's not very often you get someone who asks you to come around and visit their house in Brazil, which is quite a long way away. Brilliant, amazing. If you could trade life with anyone for a day, who would it be a why? Um, that's, I love the questions that you, that you and your folks are coming off, coming out with. Um, I, I quite like being me. I know that's a strange thing to say. But I quite like being me. Um, I think um, I might I might change lights with a, a pilot, uh, a, I mean, an air, not an airline pilot, a kind of jet pilot. I don't want to fire bombs at people in a jet fighter, but I'd like to drive. I'd like to fly a fighter plane just in the sky and be able to take it wherever I wanted. I would love to be able to do that, um, maybe for one day, because I love the excitement of doing things like that. You know, I, and it's now I've been once or twice on small planes that have been quite fast, but to be able to fly it myself and have all the fun of feeling like you were flying, maybe maybe that would be a good thing to do for a day. I think I'd like to try that. Definitely, that sounds good. Okay, last last question. If you have a super any super hit power what world it be and why well mason i think my superpower that i would like to have is the superpower that my son has already got <laughs> my son uh, has got the most fantastic memory He's, he remembers so many things from when he was a kid. He's 32 now. And he his memory is so much better than mine. And doing my job just now, which is talking about football and television and radio, and I do a lot of writing as well, sometimes I can't really remember very well all the things that happened or all the names or all the words that I want to use or phrases from all the books that I've read. But my son, Simon... Uh, who, who may pop his head in at some point, he has got the best memory I've ever known. So if I had a super pair, I would like to have my son Simon's phenomenal memory, uh, but I want it for more than a day because I need it for more than one day. <laughs> Brilliant. And moving on to your, your football career, your, your career, what are your memories of growing up? Um, and when you were a young child, did you always want to be a footballer? No, I didn't always want to be a footballer. Um, in fact, I never wanted to be a footballer, even when I was a footballer. That sounds very strange. But I was studying to do uh, other jobs, and I just played football for fun. That's all I did. I just loved playing. Um, so the idea of doing it as a job had never, I didn't even think about it. I just thought, I'm going to enjoy playing football with my friends, with little teams I was playing with. And uh, I, I just got very, very lucky. One day, a, a lovely man uh, saw me play, and he said to me, "Why don't you, why don't you come and play for my professional team? Um, and you can keep on studying as well." I was doing a degree, so like everyone listening and Mason as well, 
you want to do the things you like, don't you, Mason? But you also want to do have to do the things in school that you kind of have to do the work. Well, I had to do. I wanted to do both things, so I ended up playing football for fun, but also being a professional footballer while I was studying. And then after that, I decided to have a little try as being a professional. And it went very well because uh, the first year that I went professional, when I was 19, um, they, I'm, I was Chelsea's Player of the Year. So that was quite good, actually, to get that when I was 19. <laughs> you had a pretty good career. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> um, and growing up, as a Celtic fan, is that correct? Well, first of all, um, can I ask Mason a question? Uh, Mason, are you yeah. hearing something in the background? I thought I heard a plane there, right? And even from here, which is a long way away, I think it was a Cessna. Because <laughs> here's one of my superpowers that I have actually got, and this might surprise you, Adam, and all our listeners. Um, I can tell planes without looking at them. I can hear them, and I can tell you from the sound of the engine what type of plane it is. Amazing. Very, we're not far from... Um... An RAF base here. Ah, so right. we often have RAF planes flying over as well. Yeah. Great one. Yeah. Anyway, so um, you, you asked a question. I've forgotten what the question Oh, um, Growing up, um, am, am I right? You said you were a Celtic fan? Was a Celtic fan growing up, yes. And you joined them as a youth player, but sadly never got the opportunity to play for them. And how did that feel growing up in the Celtic youth system? And then I suppose the, the challenge or difficulty of not, not playing for them? No, there was no problem, no problem, because I was just doing it, as I said, for fun. I, set, I signed as a schoolboy. I, I was getting player of the year and top goal scorer and, and all those sort of things up until I was 16. But by the time it was the, when I was 16 years of age, when they were to make a decision and they said they weren't going to take me on, had they asked me to go and sign for them full time, I would have said no, because I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do other things like the rest of my brothers and sisters. So it wasn't a big problem. Um, and also I was still a fan. So I could go, I, even if I wasn't playing for Celtic, I could go and watch them on the, ter on the terraces as it was those days. So no, it wasn't uh, a heart. I've, I've got a very unusual background in comparison to many footballers. I mean, I've written a, a book, well, I've written two books recently. One of them's called The Accidental Football, and it's true. I became a football player by accident. I didn't mean to do it. I kind of fell into it. But that's not to forget one important thing. I always loved doing it. And even when I was a professional, I loved playing football. It was great fun. But just because you, you like doing something, it doesn't mean you have to do it for your job. And that's what I felt. So it wasn't a big problem for me. Um, but the strange thing is Celtic tried to buy me four times during my career. And each time for a various reasons, it never happened. And I came very, very close to, to playing for the team I supported as, as a boy. But it just never happened. And it's, it, it doesn't worry me. It doesn't upset me. It would have been interesting. But I was very fortunate with the, the teams I played for. So you've got to try and remember the good things that happened to you and not worry about the things that you might not have got. This is true that you got back into the football after Beck, but with your friend, Rain. 
2020 after playing Clyde Rousseau. Well, that's true, Mason. That's absolutely right. Um, that nice man I was talking about was a guy called Craig Brown, and he was the Clyde manager. And me and my friend, we had a little bet, not lots of money. I don't bet lots of money. I don't think it's a good idea to bet, so I don't bet. But whoever scored the best goal between me and my friend would buy each other a music album. Or you would look at a CD now or whatever. Even now, it's probably not that, but an album. And uh, I scored the best goal between me and my friend, Ryan. And we were laughing about it on the way off. And he was saying, no, no, my goal was better than I scored. And I said, my goal was better. And as we walked off having a laugh, that was when Craig Brown, the manager of Clyde, stopped me and said, do you want to play professionally? So had I maybe not had that bet, maybe I wouldn't have scored such a good goal and maybe Craig Brown wouldn't have picked me up. Um, but Craig Brown, who sadly, he left us a couple of days ago um, after being one of my great friends all my life and helping me in my career. Um, but he was the man after that funny bet that made me a professional footballer. Amazing. And your first season with Clyde was, was very successful. I'm right in saying you gained promotion as champions and you were voted player of the year. So what were your well, memories of that season? Yeah, divisional player of the year, yeah. Um, and we won the league, yes. Um, but even so, um, I loved every second of it. It was great fun. I was enjoying my education as much. My friends doing the degree alongside me. We were great friends. And as we all know, it's great to have friends around you. And it's sometimes it's not easy, you know, and we sometimes have to work hard to find the right friends. It's, it's not an easy thing to get. But my friends were great at, at, when I was doing my degree. And my friends playing football were a different bunch of friends and they were great as well. But um, I certainly felt that that first year was and I used the word glorious. It was so brilliant. I loved every second of it. But it still didn't make me want to be a full-time professional footballer, <laughs> which is the weird thing. And I was also playing, I'd been playing um, Scottish youth under 18 at that time as well. And around about that season, we won the European Youth Championships. So I started playing. I was only part-time, but we kept on winning things. And by the end of the season, Teams were trying to buy me, and I was—I kept on saying no. <laughs> it's a very strange thing, I, I understand, but uh, Chelsea were one team that tried to buy me at the end of that season, and I said, no, I don't want to go. I want to finish my degree. Uh, because the way I was thinking about it, if I'm really enjoying what I'm doing, why should I change? I was happy at Clyde. I, was, I had enough money. I had lots and lots of friends. Why change it and do something else? You might get some more money, but, but will it make you happily, happier? I didn't know. So that's why at the end of that season, I decided instead of signing for Chelsea, I got on a train and went around all of Europe with two friends on this train for one month. And we visited so many places in Europe. Mm. I wanted to be having a normal life. So then if, if, if money wasn't a factor and if you had lots of friends and everything and you're happy than Clyde, what was it about Chelsea then that just made you take that plunge and join them? It, well, the next season, 
they tried for a whole year to buy me and I said no. And then the second season with Clyde, um, I wanted to go to the World Youth Championships because I wanted to go to Mexico, which is where they were. There was a great stadium there called the Azteca Stadium and I quite fancied the idea of playing there. Um, but if I went to the World Youth Championships, I would miss all my final exams start of the summer. Chelsea were offering me a two-year contract. So I decided to ask the people in my course, could I not take the exams, but then take them on reset later that summer? I'll sign a two-year deal with Chelsea because I've got a deal. And if I, because if I fail any of those exams, just one of them, I'm finished. I'm out of the course. I can't finish. So it was, it's not another bet or a gamble. But it was just a logical use of the options that were there. So I took, I said to my course, I'll take two years off. I'm going to go and try Chelsea. But can I come back and finish my degree after that? And they said, yeah. So that that's fine. That means I can finish my degree in two years. I can go and take a chance at Chelsea and see what it's like. And I've lost nothing. Just logic. Nothing more than that. I will admit going to London, one of my big loves, my big passions is music. And I wanted to go and see a lot of bands. And if you live in London, there are so many brilliant bands and so many chances. So that was one of the reasons why I did, I did that. And when I went down, those two years turned into 17 years. <laughs> How did you find living in London as a 20 years old? You must have had some good times. I did have very good times, Mason, um, and lots of new friends, but it was very hard at the start. Very, very hard. Um, the football went well. Um, once again, we won the league in my first season <laughs> with Chelsea. <clears throat> once again, I got player of the year. Um, as I was only 19, 20 years of age. Um, that was kind of unusual. Um, but anytime you move to a new city um, and a new place, you have to try and make new friends. It's quite, for a lot of people, it's quite scary. I understand that. It wasn't scary for me because I understand that I'm not too bad on my own. I'm fine on my own if I have to be on my own for a while. But it wasn't as much fun as it was being surrounded by my friends and my family back home in Glasgow. So it's quite a hard thing to leave the things you're used to. So I found that a bit difficult at the start, but I knew it would only last for a short time. And after that short time, um, you know, I'd start making friends. Some of my friends from Glasgow would come down and spend time with me. And then, you know, you, you slowly but surely make, make a whole new set of friends. It takes a while, but that happens with everyone when they move house. And I moved house and I moved jobs, uh, but I was young. And uh, fortunately, I had a lot of people helping me. And the people that helped me most were the Chelsea fans. The Chelsea fans seemed to really like me. And I seemed to be playing well. And when that's happening and the job's going well, it makes everything else much easier. So it was hard, yeah. Um, but I did love London. And I still love London. I love to visit London. I don't live there anymore. I live in Scotland now. But I maybe go to London once every one or two weeks, usually for work. But I make sure I have some fun time when I'm there too. Great. 
And you've, you've kind of mentioned this, but let's dig a little bit deeper. Don't we? Music has always been a big part. Hard if you leave what was the music like when you were in London. Well, there was a there was a friend of mine who was a DJ on the radio called John Peel, and he played a lot of um, stuff that I liked. And it would these days be called punk or post-punk or indie. And it's a type of music. Now, I liked lots of types of music. I happen to like opera. I love opera. Uh, I love going to the ballet. I love lots of different types of things. But my real favourite at that time, and maybe still is, this kind of indie music. So there was a lot of bands around at the time that were quite small. Lots of them were from Scotland originally, <laughs> but lots of them were from Manchester and Liverpool. And uh, bands like you know, New Order and Joy Division and a band called Cocteau Twins. Um, there was lots and lots that I was listening to and going to see at the time. But I was going to see, I met a friend last night and she reminded me of all the bands that we'd seen together. And she was just one of my friends. And we'd seen a band called The Associates and another band called The Cure and another band called Joseph Kay and Paul Haig. And, and we just kept on talking for about half an hour of all the bands we'd seen in one year. So my big love was music, going to see live concerts, which I did a lot of the time. But that friend, John Peel, who was the DJ, I used to spend a, a good deal of time with him, sitting beside him while he was making his radio show. And while he was doing that, I would write down the numbers and the names of the records, because if you write them down right, then the people who made the records get some money when you play them on the BBC. <laughs> I did that for John Peel. Uh, and uh, along with a, a few other friends, we, and that was a lovely thing to do. But it was nice to have another thing that you loved away from the job because I liked playing football, but I wanted lots of things to be interested in. And that was a real help for me that I could actually go and do something else and listen to something else and take my mind off, you know, when things weren't going perfectly with the football. It was great to be able to forget about your problems and do something else for a while. And music very much helped me do that. Brilliant. And in in preparation for this interview, I, me, me and Mason and some of the other students uh, watched clips of you and watched football from like the 80s and 90s. And we noticed that you're a very skillful player. But some of the footage we saw of some of the games you played in, some of the tackles were horrendous. Yes. Uh, so I'm kind of in this day and age with you red cars instantly, but back in the eighties, just, just got on with it. Yeah. So what was it like playing an era where there were some really bad tackles? It was a very physical game for kind of the skillful quick player that you were that I imagine got tackled quite a lot. Well, it's a, it's a good question. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not being rude looking away from you just now. I'm actually trying to find something to show you, which may be worth looking at for fun. Um, I, I didn't mind the hard tackles, I have to admit. I really didn't mind them. The reason being, I quite liked the whole idea that I, if someone dived in and tried to hurt me, I thought I was quicker. And because I was quicker than them, I could get past them when they dived in and tried to hurt me. Now, it's just where we were at the time. That's just the way the football was. So I didn't complain about it. Um, but it was very... I have to say bordering on violence some of the time. <laughs> I wonder if I could show you this one. I don't know if you can see this. I'll see if I can make it work. Oh, right. See if you can see this, right? Yep. Let's see if we can see. Oh, there we go. Right. I'm going to see if we can. Right. Oh, my God. 
<laughs> is what people usually say. That's the kind of tackles that we that I got. Um, so was that was that you being tackled there? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Who was the tackler? I, I can't remember the kid's yeah. name, and I don't use his name when I tell people about it. Just because there could be lots of reasons why he did that. You know, he, it was very violent, and he did actually get sent off for that. Um, but you know, I understood that he might have been having a bad time at home. You know, he might have been quite stressed. The reasons for him being so uncontrolled might have been not just the fact that he wanted to hurt me, but he lost control for a reason. Because we all have moments when we lose it, we get upset, we have a bit of a meltdown. We all, we all do it. Everyone does it. We all, and it's how we react to that afterwards, and how we afterwards how we. And try and understand why we had it, and then how we calmed down quickly afterwards. And he calmed down very quickly, uh, that young player. And he was younger than me, and he sent an apology in. And it was one of the loveliest things that, even though it was quite a bad thing he'd done, and he'd done in a, in a bad moment, because he was able to say, I'm really sorry, I, I don't know, I, I was just angry for a moment. Everyone, including me, forgave him. We went, Yeah, it's fine, that's okay. We all have bad moments and we moved on. And that's one of the hardest things to for everyone to learn in life that, you know, we have our bad moments, we have difficult times. Um, but if we open and we try and understand them, and it's hard sometimes to understand, because sometimes you don't even know why you do it. I've, I've got lots of friends who don't know why they get upset. Um, but it's understanding that if you say, sorry, it was just a bad moment, and here are some of the reasons, if you know some of the reasons for it, then people are usually understanding. And when you have that understanding, it certainly, it makes it easier. I still had a, a very sore leg. I must have <laughs> I had a very sore leg. Um, I didn't mind the hard tackles. I just thought it was part of the business, part of the job. And one of the skills was to be able to see those and those attackers coming and be able to what we used to call ride them, which is get your foot off the floor and run to fall with the tackle and take the tackle and take the hit. If your foot is on the ground when you get tackled, then you can get a very, very serious injury. You can get a broken leg and snap cruciates and things like that. So there was a real skill in making sure that your balance was so good that you can make sure you, you get hurt. You didn't get badly. Oh, that's a nice tackle. That's a nice How? Not too loud. How? Was the manager, John Neal, when you were out? Ciao, see. I didn't catch up. When, how was John Neal when was I was it, how out? Important, how important was the manager, John Neal, when you were at Chelsea? Well, he's a lovely, lovely man. Um, very intelligent as well. And he was like having another dad. I've been very lucky through the years. That I've met quite a few people that have worked with me. Like you have teachers, like or managers, and you realize you realize only later how much they helped you. You don't realize at the time how much these I always talk about the coaches when I was younger, my teachers when I was younger. These recent the recent book that I wrote, the first one, um, I made a big point of talking about these people who early in my career helped me and I knew they were helping me but it's only afterwards you realize how much and not just to make you a better player and make you understand the game better 
and give you advice, but they believe in you. That's a big thing. You believe in you and see if people believe in you and also are just trying to help because they like you. It's a brilliant, brilliant thing. And it's a thing that you can always tell when someone was doing it for themselves or were doing it to help you or to help the team. I know it sounds strange, but some managers didn't care about anyone else, just themselves. Whereas some managers like John Neal cared about the group, cared about the team, cared about the people. Um, and that's what I felt about John Neal. And he also used to say silly things to me like, I was the youngest player on the team by a long way. And he'd do a big team talk and at the end of it, he'd say, and yeah, lads, when uh, if you give enough of the ball to Pat, you'll win. And like, I'm like this little kid going, really? Okay then. <laughs> I quite liked it. So John Neal, he was like another father figure to me. He was he was great. And I loved playing with under John Neal. And funnily enough, talking about father figures, John Neal and my dad became great friends um, when I was down there because they were just, they, they were the same age roughly and they just got on very well together. So John Neal was special. And he was very good at picking players and his tactics were good. More than anything else, he knew who the good people were, who the people that wanted to do it for the team and who the people who only did it for themselves. And that's one of the biggest reasons he was a very good manager. And whilst you were at Chelsea, you, you got called up for Scotland. You made a debut for Scotland. How was that getting the call up and, and making your debut? Um, the debut I remember very well because my dad had always told me that he thought I'd play for Scotland. And I told him he was silly. He was foolish that he did, he knew nothing. And the first day I got my first cap, he was going, I thought you told me I was being stupid. <laughs> um, so my dad knew all along that he thought I was good enough. Yes, it was a great honour uh, to play for my country. Um, and I didn't, it hadn't, I hadn't even hoped for it. I hadn't even expected it. But when it happened, and here's the funny thing, I still wasn't worried about it. I still thought, yeah, I'll be good enough. I'll be okay. So even though, you know, it, it was something I hadn't even dreamt about. People go, oh, I dreamt about playing for my country. I hadn't, hadn't even dreamed about it. I hadn't even thought about it because I never thought it would happen. Uh, but it was lovely to play. And you know that all your friends, all your family, all the people you've known are looking going, oh, Pat did okay. It's a lovely feeling. Um, it's not so good a feeling if you don't play well. <laughs> so the idea is when you get a game for Scotland, you play or your country, whether you Scotland or England. Uh, and I'm fortunate I had a few pretty good games for Scotland. But I remember the first one and uh, Kenny Deglish, who we talked about earlier on, he was playing for Scotland that night and some very, very good, other, other very, very good players. So it was good fun to pull on that dark blue shirt. But after the game, I walked out and I got my shower and it changed and I walked straight over to my dad and I said to him, dad, here's a shirt and here's my cap that you get for playing. You keep that. You deserve it. And it was a lovely moment to be able to give that to my dad. If you... Years later, you played at or 92. What are your memories of your drone name? Well, so what are your memories of your 92? Yeah, um, we actually, we, we lost the first two games against, first game was against world champ, no, the European champions. And we just get beat by a goal. 
in the second game, we were playing against the world champions, Germany, and they narrowly beat us as well. So the last game was against uh, a country called CIS, which doesn't exist anymore, but it's now called Russia. <laughs> and <laughs> we beat them 3-0. Um, I was fortunate. I, I helped. I got a penalty kick in that game for us <clears throat> when we won 3 one no. And it was lovely for many things because the Euros were much smaller then. There were only eight teams qualified. Now you get, I think you get 32 now. Um, so it was very, very hard to qualify for the Euros. So we did a good job getting there. Um, we played quite well. We played some of the best players in the world. You know, people like Rudy Kulik, Marco van Basten. You know, those I mean, really the top players in the world at the time were playing against us for Germany and for the Netherlands. Um, and even a lot of players for the Russian team were good as well. Um, so that was good to do that, to realise that they weren't much better than us if they were better than us at all most of the time. Um, the biggest and best memory of the fans, our fans were fantastic. They sang the whole time from and two hours before the game till two hours after the game. And we were playing and there was bagpipes playing and everybody got behind us and the fans stuck with us. So those were very, very memorable times playing in that tournament. Even though while I was playing for it, playing in that tournament, I was playing with a bro broken leg. And that's quite unusual to play in a national wow. team with a broken leg. Um, I had, a, I think, a cracked fibula and nobody knew what it was, what was wrong. It didn't show up in the x-rays until later. Um, so I actually couldn't kick the ball more than 20 yards with my good foot. So I had to play in the European Championships with my bad foot. Um, <laughs> and I could dribble okay, which was important. Uh, that wasn't a problem, but kicking the ball any distance, I couldn't do. So uh, the, the funny thing is, nobody noticed. <laughs> I was the only person who knew. So that's a strange thing to do. PicturePath is an award-winning visual timeline app that's empowering individuals with autism. This free app provides a simple way for users to plan out activities, such as going to a match or theatre, using structured timelines that reduce stress and anxiety. Users create a visual timeline that caters to their specific daily needs, allowing them to prepare for activities, events and routines. PicturePath provides a structure that enhances communication, promotes independence, improves memory recall and supports users to manage their day with confidence. Whether for personal use or in educational settings, PicturePath is the ultimate tool for individuals with additional needs, empowering them to manage their schedules, track progress and enjoy more activities. PicturePath, download the app today. A few weeks ago on the podcast, we interviewed Brian McClear, who I know is a good friend of yours, and he has very kindly sent us some questions to ask you. <laughs> um, These will be strange then, won't they? Well, some of them make no sense to me, but I'm hoping yeah. that they make some sense to you. <laughs> that, that would be very typical of Brian McClear. Okay, so he's, he's asked a few. So we'll go with, how pleased were you when the college you attended became a university? Well, the, I used to, Brian, this is a, the reason why he's asking this question is because Brian, as you probably know, went to Glasgow University, uh, which is where my wife went to. She went to Glasgow University, but I only went to Glasgow College of Technology. <laughs> now, that was a polytechnic. I actually had been accepted for Glasgow and Strathclyde University, but chose a different uh, degree when I wanted to do. So I went to Glasgow Tech, as we call it. But some years later, 
they were uh, they changed the name and became Caledonian University. <laughs> it's now a university, so I can sort of say I went to uni- university. But if Brian McClure says that to me, he's having a sneaky wind up, right? Because <laughs> he went, he was having a laugh. But I always come up with the same answer: that university were kind enough to to realise that I did a lot of work, which hopefully was good work, particularly in anti-racism and other areas in my life, and they made me a doctor. So I am now a doctor. Uh, <laughs> so but a do- not a doctor of medicine, a doctor of letters. So, uh, yes, that was very kind of to do that. Um, so I wonder if Brian's a doctor yet. I don't think he is. So- I, never, I never used my doctor because my daughter is a real doctor. <laughs> it's a medical doctor. So, yeah, you, you definitely won the war there with Brian becoming a doctor and... <laughs> yeah. he, won every, he won every other war. He, <laughs> we, we got exactly the same medals throughout our entire career, except he got a better one version of every medal every single day. <laughs> um, his next one says, right, you're friends with Brian McClear or Chucky to many, but he says you have a, another name for him. Um, right. <laughs> I'm amazed that he actually wants me to tell people what the other name well, we called two of us, myself and the guy called John Colhoun. We didn't call him Brian Mickler. We called him Brian No Flair. <laughs> now, what that means is he always just did the right thing and with no nonsense, he went and scored loads of goals, right? Whereas myself and this guy, John Colhoun, we were skillful and stylish and we had flair. So we <laughs> wound him up saying that he was Brian No Flair as opposed to Brian Mickler. <laughs> Um, his next one says, Brian stated that you're a fan of Edinburgh team Hibernian, an unusual choice for an East End Glaswegian. Can you expand? expand? I can. Um, when I was young, I had two teams. Celtic were my first team and Hibernian were my second team. Lots of people have a second team. And when I got a little bit older, maybe in my early 30s, early to mid-30s, when I stopped playing football, there were some things that go on in Glasgow that I don't really like. And it's all about Catholics and Protestants and things like that. And I can't be bothered with that. I have no interest in all that. And my son, who is autistic as well, my son, I didn't want him to have to go and listen to all that stuff. So we had to go and choose another team. And I chose my second team. So what it was, was Celtic were my first team, Hibs were my second team. I just switched it around. (laughs) (laughs) So Hibs are my first team now. And although, and I often tell this to many people, it's the reason why I changed is not the reason you think, because I I didn't just do it because I wanted to support a team that had the same scarf because I was too mean to buy a new scarf. Both of them were green and white, exactly the same scarf. (laughs) So I, that's not the reason, but it helped. (laughs) Um, Brian's got two more questions for us. So it says, in your humble opinion, who was the better goal scorer, Kerry Dixon or John Aldridge? Oh, that is a brilliant question. And that's so typical of Brian McClure because it, it is absolutely brilliant. I, I don't know. Wow. That is, it's just brilliant. I, can't, I, I don't know if I can tell you. Um, no I think they're very close. I, I do actually... No, I don't think... I, <laughs> I just don't know if I could tell, but they, they, are, that, they are both... World-class finishes. I'm sorry, Brian has stumped me. <laughs> I cannot give you a good answer for that. 
fact. And the last one from Brian is Tony Cotton kept a record of every goal that he scored. Did you keep a record of your nutmegs? <laughs> I didn't go for many nutmegs, I'll be honest <laughs> with you. Um, there was other skills that I quite liked. But in actual fact, I didn't keep records of my my career really at all. And the, and the reason being, I was always wanting to play the next game. I didn't think about what happened before. And I spent 19 years trying to forget what happened before because I had to figure out what to do next. So um, maybe now that I'm a bit old and I can look back recently, uh, since because I had to write, I wrote two books recently and they were about my life. I decided to look back on some of that stuff. And although I didn't keep records, I certainly kept some video and people often say, you, you've probably been looking online. You mentioned for some of my skills online, there's a there's one clip on YouTube that's under Pat Nevin skills. If you put that on YouTube, then this uh, seven or eight minute piece comes up. And maybe when I look back now, I probably counted the amount of goals I scored by scooping the keeper. I love <laughs> scooping the keeper. Um, and quite a few of those scoops are on that little bit of uh, footage that's uh, that's up. And the reason why it's up, by the way, is because I built it. <laughs> and I put the music on the background. So even if you don't like the this the um, the goals and, or the bits of skill, you'll certainly, you should like the music because the music's really good. <laughs> Um, and in your final year at Chelsea, you, you got relegated um, from a team that a few years before was was pushing kind of towards the top of the table. What had changed in that team from a top of the table team to a team that got relegated? Well, if you look just now and you think, how can that happen so quickly? Well, it does happen. I mean, Leicester City have recently been relegated. And now it's a good few years since they won the league, the Premier League. But it can happen. You can't stand still in football. Um, you have to improve. You have to get better players all the time. You have to let the players who were good, who are now a bit too old, go. Um, we changed managers. The manager maybe wasn't doing as good a job as the previous manager. I think that's probably acceptable. We know I, I loved the new manager, but he wasn't doing as good a job as John Neal. Um, didn't like they, they changed the tactics and the tactics did not suit the players. Um, the tactic, the new tactics were very unsuitable. But the biggest that as well is the fact that we didn't have a lot of strength and depth. You know, so if we had two or three or four or five injuries, it's kind of hard for us to play as well. And I have to say, a lot of the time it was bad luck. We had a lot of bad luck. The final season, we got relegated. But we were, I think, seven points clear of relegation of the bottom three. But for one or two years only, the fourth bottom club went into a playoff. So in actual fact, about, I think it was November that season, we were in the top three. And we fell down a bit, but we still scored loads of goals. I think QPR ended up fifth that year, and we'd scored more goals than them. So we're still doing that okay. <laughs> we're still doing that fine. We let in too many goals. Uh, and the other thing is we lost our goalkeeper and he was brilliant, Eddie Nitzvicki. And all those things together, people always want one thing. And you'll tend to find out in life, it's not as simple as that. It takes a number of things to go right or to go wrong for you to get great success or that failure. And it was quite a number of things that went wrong at the same time. 
You left then. You then left Chelsea to John. Everton. Everton. How did that move come about? And why did you choose Everton? Everton, well done. Yeah, well done. Uh, Thanks, Mason. Um, I was just about to sign for a team called Paris Saint Germain and I'd agreed to sign with them. And then at the very last minute, Everton uh, came in and said they would like to buy me. Now, the strange thing is, Everton were a far bigger club than Chelsea in those days. And that's just the way it was. They were a a team that had won European competitions. They'd won the league lots of times. So when they came in and asked me to play for them, uh, I said I'd talk to the manager. And their manager was the man I liked. And the way I work is I want to work with people I like. And also Everton were, you know, they could be one of the great teams. Whereas PSG at the time, Paris Saint-Germain, they actually weren't that great. They were okay, but they weren't great. They are a big side now. They weren't at the time. So that was, they come in for me. I went and, you know, I talked to my wife about it. But the strange thing was how it happened. I was sitting in a beach in Corfu and a man ran down and said, there's been a phone call for you from the Taverna up at the top of the hill. And I went to the top of the hill and it was my flatmate in London to say that Everton wanted to buy me. And I thought about it for five seconds and went, Okay, tell him I'll sign. That'll be fine. And then that was it. There was no negotiations. There was no big thing. And that really confused the uh, all the the people at Everton. They were going, do you understand what's going on? How come he can agree so quickly? Does he not think about the money and all that sort of stuff? But I didn't. That's not the way I thought. I just thought, yeah, I'm, I like that idea. I like Everton. But I, I still had to go and talk to the manager. And I was in the manager's... Um, company for five minutes and when I realised that he'd made a very special tape or his daughter had made a very special tape of music for me in the back of the car that I really loved I thought yeah I like these people they're all right <laughs> they, they know good music they're also a nice pe- they're also nice people so yes it, it was very very surprising the reasons why I signed except for the one that they were a very good team um I want to take you to the 1989 FA Cup semi-final. You scored the goal to take Everton to the final, beating Norwich 1-0. Mm-hmm. But on the same day, Liverpool played against Nottingham Forest at Hillsborough and sadly, 97 fans lost their life. What are your memories of that day? Because I imagine it was probably one of the best days of your life and obviously one of the worst days of your life, especially being someone coming from the city of Liverpool. Yeah. Um, we kind of felt it was the highest of highs because we got to the cup final, the FA Cup final, and I just got the winner, as you say. Uh, and it was only a few minutes after walking off that we get told that so many people, we didn't know how many had died, but we knew there was a big disaster. So that was the, the, the hardest and the saddest thing in my entire career within the, the game. And I've had a few sad times. Um, it was incredible. You know, the highest high, lowest low. And afterwards, I didn't think they should play the FA Cup final. They should just leave it and not bother playing it that year because it showed would show how important you know people's lives were on top of you know bigger much bigger than football um and i went to quite a few of the funerals as did many of the of the, the people in the team uh, which was torture really heartbreaking i mean i don't use it lightly it was horrible and heartbreaking because these were 
mostly young guys and young girls. Uh, so it was really bad, hard, hard and sad time. But the, fam the families of people who died, they said they thought we should play the game in the final. Um, and because they wanted the game to be played, uh, we, we accepted that. And the game was played, and it was apparently a great game, 3-2 after extra time. John Aldridge scored again, as did Ian Rush a couple of times. Um, but that was my first year away from Chelsea, and it was a bit of a strange roller coaster because we got to the FA Cup final, but we'd lost it. Terrible times of... I'd had a very serious injury that year and got back very surprisingly quickly, but it was a very serious injury. Um, so it was a, an extraordinary extraordinary time um, and it's all a, became a bit of a blur I mean I was getting married a few weeks later there was so many things going on um, So, but you just you kind of have to be resilient as a footballer and deal with everything that happens so it was a sad time but I always knew that you know the effect that that would have in Liverpool and the Liverpool and Everton fans would be huge and would last for decades and it certainly has it definitely has you lost the 1889 FA Cup final to Liverpool in extra time. What are your memories of the get on that game? Of the actual game? Well, I've not got that many memories of it because I have never watched it again since. Um, and even though apparently I was involved making the, the first goal that we scored, um, I don't really want to watch it again because we got beat. Um, maybe one day I will, but I, I haven't yet. My memories of where it was very, very hot. It was a good game. You know, five goals, extra time, very tight. Um, I remember being annoyed near the end when some fans ran on the pitch because they shouldn't have done that. And the reason why people had died at Hillsborough was because they'd put fences up to stop people running on the pitch. I was annoyed about that. But I... I'll be honest with you, the thing I remember more than anything else was near the end of the game, it'd been a long season. I'd had a very serious injury. Um, for 120 minutes in 100 degrees heat, I had chased a guy called John Barnes. <laughs> and I was exhausted, I have to say. I was absolutely exhausted. And I'm not, not proud to say that when I got my medal, I put it straight in a bin. I wasn't interested in the medal because it was a loser's medal as far as I was concerned. Somebody spotted me doing it and sent, sent it back to me. And I'm happy they did because it was the wrong thing to do. It was disrespectful. I didn't think anyone saw me doing it, but uh, I'm happy they gave me it back. But having said that, do I know where that medal is now? I have no idea. <laughs> if I looked hard for it, I might be able to find it. It'll be somewhere in the house, but wow, I have no idea. In football, what you want to be is a winner. And we didn't win that day, so... Maybe I blanked a lot of the memories <laughs> out, Mason. Um, and again, whilst we were doing our, our research last week, we came across um, a bit about Everton manager Howard Kendall mm -hmm. and how he returned as manager. And at the time, you didn't necessarily see eye to eye with him. And it's also true that he once fined you because you wouldn't get drunk with the team. Yes, that's absolutely <laughs> true. Um, which I found, it was, I think it was meant to be funny. Um, but he still took the money <laughs> and the lads had a few drinks with it. Um, no, but I thought the, there was too much alcohol being drunk at the time uh, by a number of people and there wasn't a great feeling uh, within the group. 
which was a real shame though, because I got on with everyone. Um, so that ended up, I left Everton. Um, um, because if the guy doesn't like you, you're not going on with him, and you're not going to game. There's no point in staying. So I eventually left Everton, which was a real shame because I loved the club and the fans were unbelievably nice to me. Um, and I didn't, I mean, I played a lot of good games, but I certainly didn't play as well as often as I had for Chelsea or indeed as often and as well as I did at my next club. So, you know, there's mixed feelings. I don't have a bad feeling about uh, Everton. I also don't have any bad feelings about Howard. Again, another man who's not with us anymore. It was just a business. You know, it's a it's a very, very hard business to be in. And him and I didn't see it the same way. And because he was the boss, he makes the decisions. Um, within a week of the start of the next season, I'd played against Everton for Tranmere, my new team. And Howard and I were just laughing together. So, you know, at the time it's stressful and at the time it's pressure. Um, and I didn't like some of their attitudes, particularly towards the alcohol. Um, but in the end, there's not a lot to be gained in life by going through life with bitterness. I don't do it. I've just, I don't have bitterness towards anyone or anger towards anyone. I try and see the good in people and see the good in situations. So, no, we didn't go on and it led to the end of my time at Everton. But am I annoyed about it? Not really. A following, a following a number of years, a Tranmere, you terms returned to Scotland. Did you always want to end to Cara in Scotland? Yes, I, also, I did always want to end my career in Scotland. Um, the reason being is that I'm from Scotland. I'd had quite a lot of years down south in England, you know, 15, 16 years. It's a long time. And I wanted to go back and bring my children up in Scotland. And they were now, you know, I had, by this time I had two kids and, you know, Simon and Lucy. And uh, we wanted to, when we finished playing, I wanted to live in Scotland, back where I come from. So I always wanted to come back. And I had a great year at Kilmarnock, which I loved to bits. It was fantastic. But then after one year at Kilmarnock, I thought I was going to retire. And then I got offered the job as chief executive and player at the same time at a top Premier League club in Scotland called Motherwell. And I had some of the most incredible adventures of my life in those four next four years because that's uh, two jobs that no one, I think, has ever done before or indeed since at a top-level club at the same time. So uh, that was extraordinary and very, very hard work. If it was interesting... But it was very, very hard. Yeah, I can, I can definitely imagine. And um, moving on now to, if we can talk a little bit about autism, that's okay. Uh huh. Um, so you mentioned that your son, son is autistic, and our school is a school for autistic children. So it's, it'd be interesting to, to chat to you as a, as a parent and get kind of get your your thoughts and opinion. Mm-hmm. So regarding your son, when did you realise? You may be autistic, or when did you first kind of think about it? And I imagine in the in the 90s, autism wasn't as well known as it is now. It was uh, almost unknown. And certainly getting a diagnosis, we started notice that Simon was a wee bit different from the other kids in the school when he was about, or in his nursery when he was about two, two and a half. And um, it was probably around about two and a half 
certainly long before his third birthday, that we realized that he would get a diagnosis of autism, which we didn't understand. And it was up to me and Annabelle, my wife, to learn more, to try and understand it. We didn't have a lot of help. There certainly weren't any schools. Um, and it was, I have to say, it was difficult for us because all we wanted to do was the best for Simon and give him the best help and give him, you know, try and understand what he, what would help him in every way because autism's so interesting. You're, 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 there's a different way of looking at the world. It's not the wrong way or the right way. There's just a different way that people with autism often look at the world. And some of us who are not autistic, although I think we're all a little bit autistic, and I th certainly think I'm a little bit autistic, um, I think we have to try and understand the way that people with autism think. And if we understand the way people with autism think, I think it makes it easier for us all. You know, and I, I've learned, and I wanted to try and teach Simon so many things. But I have to tell you, I think he's taught me more than I've taught him. Because I've learned that there are other ways of looking at life. There are other ways to get great happiness out of life. There are difficult things that you have to find a way around. Like many autistic young men and women, you know, have meltdowns and difficult times when things are difficult. Um, we've taken many years to understand, you know, what what why the reasons it happens, you know, and what makes it easier afterwards, what helps us all, then try to talk to each other and find a way to tell each other why we're upset and why that happened. So that's just one little you know, situation. <clears throat> but we've we've tried to listen as much to Simon. And it's, it's hard with some people who have autism. It's, we don't have all the words all the time, you know, and all be able to explain what they feel. So that makes it challenging for everyone, in particularly the person who's got who's autistic. But just always remember, it's just different. It's not better. It's not worse. It's just different. How did having the autistic child impact as you a family? Well done. So how did having an autistic child impact the family? Sam was our first son, um, and we've just had one other child, Lucy. Um, and maybe there were certain things that we thought we would have done. I think we live in a different place than we would have, because we like a little rural community, which I think helped Simon. Um, I certainly think in the early days, holidays were curtailed. We didn't have the same holidays because it was hard for Simon to travel. Um, he's learned how to travel now. And the good news is, I can tell you, Simon recently went on his own to Berlin which is fabulous. Um, we're very proud of Simon. Simon uh, gets buses and trains and he's he drives now. And he's been driving for quite a few years. In fact, Simon has a job. He drives uh, children with special education who needs to school about. So, Amazing. you know, Simon's done incredibly well. And everybody, what people forget about um, autism and families who are dealing, dealing with, you know, the questions that come up is... There are often, and there are usually, everybody improves, everybody learns. You know, whether you're autistic or not, we all learn, and we all get better at things. We all understand things a wee bit better. And uh, maybe for us, we maybe had a wee plan 
for our lives. And maybe that plan became a different plan. But hey, so what? <laughs> it's, a, it's another plan to enjoy. And as I'm talking to you just now, we're going to go on holiday quite soon to Kefalonia. And we go there every year because Simon loves going to the same places, which is fortunate for me because I love going to that place too. <laughs> so, but Simon's now getting much better at going to new places. Um, so traveling is a thing that Simon loves to do. So maybe some of the things that we'd like to have done 15 years before, we were delayed a bit and we couldn't do them. But it's amazing how, you know, Simon's caught up with it. And now Simon will go to more concerts than me. Absolutely. He loves going to concerts. Um, and Simon has these special superpowers that I talked to you about, which is phenomenal memory and stuff like that. So it changed their lives. And let's be honest, it's hard for everyone sometimes. Let's not pretend it's not. It's hard, isn't it? And your mum, your dad, or your siblings, they find it difficult sometimes. Everyone does. But you learn. And as long as you're willing to learn, and as long as you really love each other, that it, 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 you can get through it, usually. You know, you can get through most things. But there are difficult times. And when in, Simon had a difficult time in a train recently, and I'll tell you this little story. Simon had... For good reason, our flight was cancelled. So we had to go from London. So we had to rush to get the train. So we got on the train and Simon's not mad keen on changing his routine. But he was coping with it okay. And we got on the train. And then the train had to stop because, wait for this, a boat had run into the bridge in front of us. <laughs> a very unusual thing. But we were stuck again. And Simon did get very upset in a very packed train. Um, and it was, it was hard for everyone. And of course, some people look and don't understand why you're having a meltdown. Simon, at his age now, was able to, when things calmed down, without us saying anything, he walked down the train and said to everyone, I'm sorry, I just got a bit upset there. And he talked to just everyone. He walked down and had a chat with people. Do you know, everyone was absolutely fabulous. They were lovely. They were understanding because people, most people have a better understanding of autism and various other neurodiversities now. Um, so that's, that was a hard day. But it was also a happy day. Yeah, and that's, that's fine. That's, from doing this podcast as well, we've, when we set the po podcast up, we wanted to obviously teach our students key skills, but also make the public more aware of autism. And some of the feedback that we've got from our listeners is is brilliant. Seeing the progression of of the students who've done the podcast, we've had about eight or nine have done the podcast, and they're saying that they're learning more about autism because they've never come across a person who's autistic or come across a family member who's autistic. So yeah, making the public more aware is is key because at some point in your life you're going to come across an autistic person, whether that's in in the street or a family member or a next door neighbour. Um. So yeah, it's, it's yeah, exactly. I had I hadn't talked about it until um about a year or two. I hadn't talked about my my wife and I hadn't talked publicly about Simon's autism, but it's because we we had one way of looking at it as we thought it was Simon's choice because I'm quite I'm in the public eye and Simon will choose when people want to know, um, and before that, uh, what I had done is tried to promote 
knowledge and understanding of autism, I'd worked with Scottish Autistic Society and Autism Research Trust, um, and it's now called ACE. It's under a man called Simon Baron Cohen, who many people will know in the world of autism. And what I tried to do is talk about it a little bit then. But this recent book that came out just only two or three weeks ago, um, I've written a bit about it. And I hope that when you write books, they're big, long things sometimes. But I do hope that the most important thing to come out of the book is for people to read what, how we dealt with the situation and how Simon's dealt with it and where he is now and the difficulties. I hope this touches a few people, not just people who don't, have never met anyone or dealt with anyone who's autistic, but also those who have just finding out that they may have a, a son or a daughter or a, a sibling or a nephew or a niece or whatever who's autistic. Um, I wanted people to know. So what you say about giving understanding, well, we're doing that now. As a family, it was time for us to do that now, and I suspect uh, I'm getting on a wee bit now, but I suspect I'm going to spend a, a large part of the rest of my life doing exactly what you say. And this question may not be relevant to you, um, so if it's not, that's fine, we'll move on, but it might be. So as a parent of an autistic child, there's a lot more involvement from professionals, maybe occupational therapists, physiotherapists, speech and language, specialist school. As a parent, how did you find having the involvement from a lot more professionals in, in Simon's life? Well, it was there. We, we wanted some. <laughs> we didn't have enough professionals involved. And that was the real difficulty at the start because we needed people to explain to us. Then we could maybe take over some of the, the tutoring, etc. Um, but I have to say, since we went we went back to Scotland because there was Simon's was capable of doing mainstream skilling with uh, single help with personal help each day um, to some degree, and there was a special needs unit within the school that Simon was in as well. That, that professional help and care was brilliant. It was a lifesaver because it found out Simon the capabilities. Um, you won't always agree with everything every specialist says. I'll be honest with you. Um, but the vast majority of people are in that profession are doing it for the right reasons um, and trying to find the path. Because we've all got a path. Trying to find the path. Um, Simon found, he didn't find a path, he found a road, oddly enough. And the road was through a car, you know, and you know that's why he got a job. And that's what it was. It's very fulfilling. Not to, to everyone, not just to anyone who's got it, but to anyone of a reason to get up, to be able to do a job, to have a core direction in your life. Um, and whatever that is, it doesn't matter what it is. You know, if you can find what that is, um, and certainly having those professionals in our life gave us little points, gave us help. And, and certainly that was something that we didn't have any problem passing over, saying, time, well, okay, you do this, but we've also got our ideas, so we'll manage things. Um, so there were some were better than others, some were fabulously brilliant, some were less than good. Um, but I think most people who work in the profession to take care of anyone who has any differences, um, I think they're mostly there for the right reasons. What defines what? you give to other parents of 
autistic children? Well, as you know, it's a very wide spectrum. And it's, so it's very hard to give very specific advice. But if somebody would have given me advice, the piece of advice I would love to have been given was when Simon was two and a half, three, and we just found out, if somebody would have said, don't worry about all the things that might go wrong. Just, just that line. Don't, don't throw away your whole life worrying about the things that might go wrong. But some of them won't. Yeah. You know? Try, if possible, to deal with each thing as it comes along. Yes, you need to prep and plan for certain things. But I gave away a few years of my life worrying about things that never happened. Or Simon breathed past them and got was able and capable. And yes, it's human nature to worry. But what I did learn, and the biggest help I ever got was I learned actually happiness isn't what society tells you. Happiness is just happiness. So whoever you are, wherever you are, there are plenty of people that multimillionaires who are supposedly got everything and aren't happy. And I know many autistic boys and girls, men and women, who have found a place in their life where they might not have a lot of money, but they've got a lot of happiness. I'd rather be them. I would rather be that person. And yeah. I'm not saying that yeah. just for effect. I mean that. I'd rather be happy. And I would certainly rather my son was that person and that happy. So Definitely. if there's any advice, it is... Try and not worry your entire life away. Do the moment. Plan, yeah, but do the moment and love the moment. Um, and in preparation for each podcast, we get a group of students together to come up with a quick-fire would-you-rather game. Oh, so um, <laughs> they try and they, they do base it on, on yourself, but there's a few random, random okay. ones in there. So basically, would-you-rather, uh, city break or beach holiday? City break for me. Stamford Bridge or Goodison Park? The bridge. <laughs> deep-fried haggis or a deep-fried Mars bar? Oh, it would have to be the haggis because I don't really like Mars bars, but I like haggis. <laughs> would you rather score or assist? A great assist is better than a good goal. <laughs> Go assist. Would you rather win the World Cup with Scotland or the Premier League with Chelsea? I would... God, it's a brilliant question. It's my country, I'm afraid. Probably <laughs> be that. Would you rather go back and meet your ancestors or go forward and meet your great, great, great grandchildren? Grandchildren. I, I, love, I live forward. Grandchildren. And this is, a, this is a good one. Would you rather have a fight against one chicken the size of an elephant or 10 elephants the size of chickens? And go to 10 elephants the size of chickens. <laughs> I think I might win that one. I wouldn't win the other one. <laughs> Every week on the podcast, we'd like our guests to ask questions to each other. So we get a guest asked a question, but they have no idea who the guest is going to be for. Question is going to be for. So this week's question comes from our last guest, which was F1 world champion Damon Hill. Mm-hmm. And he asks, do you feel that you have one unique special quality that made you successful? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I don't get nervous. That's it's a, it's a very strange thing. I'm very, I'm dedicated to my craft. I do, I am, you know, hardworking. I, you know, I, I love this, the creativity, all those things. 
see the fact I don't care. I'm, I, I will just do my best. And if I have to give my best, that's it. I can't do any more. It doesn't matter. You, you know, might not so, be able to answer this question then. Why don't you get nervous? Because if I was playing the FA Cup final in front of 90,000 people, I would be bricking it. I think I don't get nervous because I know how silly I am. So what's the worst thing that can happen? You can look foolish. Well, I think I'm ridiculous anyway. Uh, <laughs> I don't take myself particularly seriously. In 100 years' time, no one will remember. <laughs> 20 years' time, no one will remember. In the end, the things that I care about are the people near me. And I don't get nervous about them because I'm comfortable with them. Um, so no, nothing. Absolutely nothing. I do television shows. I do... There was a, there was one moment in my entire life. There was one moment where I I felt strange, and that might have been nervousness. Um, but it went away very quickly, and that was before a friendly football game, right in the middle of my career, playing for Everton against Celtic. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> and for a few moments, as I woke up, I walked out. I felt really quite unwell, and the manager said, "I think you're nervous." And I went. Well, I don't really know what nervous is, so it's not really helped me there very much. <laughs> I think it's a real... People often say right. getting nervous like, uh... gets the adrenaline going. But in actual fact, for me, it really helped me because I was always calm. And if you're going to be creative, it's nice to be confident and calm. Could you do the same first part? So could you think of a question? Can any question, completely random, sport-related, um, that we'll ask our next guest? We're not going to tell you who the guest is. Okay, so my question would be, what is the one thing or person, it can be in sport or a sport, that you're supposed, or it might not be sport at all, maybe, that you're supposed to really love, but you don't? <laughs> you're supposed to really like it? Because I'm, I'm like this with music. There's certain bands or certain singers or whatever that everybody else I know loves. And everybody who I like, you know, who we all like the same music. But there's, there's always an odd one where you think, I don't get that. I don't understand that. <laughs> and it's a, it's a one thing, it could be even be in life that you don't know why, but you just don't get it why everybody else loves it so much. Brilliant. Go on, I would just like to say a big thing, thank you. Thank you again to everyone who listened to our podcast. We really uh, rent it. appreciate it. Appreciate it. Please con- to continue. It it leave receives a pass or podcast onto your friends and, and family. Thank you so much for talking the time to chat with us. Today, Pat, thank you so much for talking, attacking. We we really enjoyed speaking with you, and it means so much to us as a school to be able to have a pro to opportunity opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. That's a pleasure, Mason. Would you mind if I asked you one question? Can Pat ask you a question? Yeah. I want to ask you, what is your favourite thing? What do you love doing? Leeds. Leeds. 
Oh, that's good. They're a really good team. And they've got they're really loud. All the supporters are really loud. You, do you mind the loud noises? Because it's really loud there, isn't it? Yeah. Do you go to the stadium to watch them? Yeah. Is it really loud or is it quiet? Really loud. And is that okay? Yes. Well, I'm happy because my son that used to not like going to the football because it was too loud. But these days, he loves it and he doesn't mind the loud noises. Anyway, it's uh, a pleasure to speak to you, uh, Mason. An absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for your questions. I thought they were great. Bye, Pat. <laughs> Bye, Mason. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, mate. Thank you. See you later. Mason, we have just finished speaking to Pat. That was your first podcast with us. How did you find chatting to Pat? Pat. Pat, yeah. Did you enjoy speaking to Pat? Yeah. Were there any stories that you found really good that you told us? Yeah. So, Did you enjoy doing the podcast? Yeah. yeah. Would you like to do another one? Yeah, please. Yeah. Brilliant. Mason, you did a really, really good job. It's really tough doing a podcast, especially on your own with without any other students here. So you did a fantastic job, Mason. Well done. And thank you so much to everyone for listening to the podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it. Please continue to support us and pass the podcast on to your friends and family and follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, and, and wherever else. So thank you so much for listening and have a great week and we will see you again soon. Bye. Goodbye. So we've come to the part of the podcast now with the listeners' questions. And we have a question today that comes from Leanne from Cambridge. So thank you so much for sending your question in. And the question is for Alyssa today. And the question is, Alyssa, what is the, in your opinion, is the best or your favourite thing about being autistic? Well, for me, this is going to sound crazy, sound (laughs) kind of unique. For me, it's actually how differently I think compared to other people. Okay, so how do you think? Tell me a little example. Well, for one, I tend to think, come at something more in more ways than one. So most people might try and think of one way to do something. I tend to, I like to however like to try and think of more than one one solution and see which one works. And you're very good at that. You're you're very good at helping me think of solutions to the podcast, aren't you? And coming up with new ideas and new suggestions. So you do that very very well. Um, and you're we're here today at the careers thing, Wolverhampton. How are you getting on today? Um, it's going on pretty well. We're making you do some work, aren't we? Yes, I'm running the feedback. Back. I'm help. Well, I'm helping run the fee- feedback back desk. And how's the feedback going? How is it positive, negative? Um. Well, to be fair, fair. Once we hand the the person some some the sheets or the iPads, it's in their hands. So I honestly don't know what they pick. <laughs> well, I'm sure the feedback's always good. And I'm sure the feedback of you is very good, Lisa, because you have been very helpful today. So thank you, and thank you for answering the question. Um, and if you've got any more questions for us, then please visit our website www.twssportspodcast.co.uk, or you can follow us and drop us a message on social media. So thank you very much. The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism, and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. 
This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine.